Let's jump into our subject uh, this morning. Some time ago, I read the story of a couple that lived in Vermont, and it was a particularly horrible winter. And so they were going to take a vacation down to Myrtle Beach. And they were really looking forward to it. Uh, the husband was going to go down early, though, because the wife had some business in Minneapolis. And so the guy went to the airport to fly down to Myrtle Beach. And when he arrived at the airport, he found out that the plane had been overbooked. And he couldn't take the flight. And so he appealed to his supervisor, can you get me on the plane? And they said, no, we can't. And so he flew out the next day. When he arrived in Myrtle Beach, he was surprised at how hot it was. In fact, it was as uncomfortably hot down there as it had been uncomfortably cold in Vermont. And so the first thing on his mind was to get to the pool. But when he had checked in at the hotel, they gave him a note from his wife. It was just a confirmation note. I'll be seeing you tomorrow. Everything's okay and everything. And he decided that he wanted to respond to her note before running to the pool. And so he fired off a quick email to his wife. The problem was that he got the address off just a little bit. And the email that was intended for his wife ended up going to this elderly woman who was married to a pastor who happened to have passed away the day before. And when she got the email, she screamed and passed out. Family members came in, and they looked at this letter on the screen. Dearest wife, departed yesterday, as you know. Just now got checked in. Some confusion at the gate. Appeal was denied. Receive confirmation of your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Signed, your loving husband. P.S. Things are not as we thought. You're going to be surprised at just how hot it is down here. <laughs> the, the, the thought that this poor woman would get an email like this thinking that her um, deceased husband was writing from the other side and... It all is not a very, um, I mean, it's a funny thing, but the concept behind it is not the idea that there could be a place that in the Bible is called hell, a place of suffering, is something I don't think people want to think about. A lot of people struggle to believe that such a place even exists, and yet when I read the New Testament, I cannot get past the fact that, that the Apostle Paul talked about it. Peter talked about it, John, one of Jesus' closest friends, talked about it, and Jesus himself spoke about it on several occasions. For example, in Matthew chapter 25, referring to himself and using a title that came from the Old Testament book of Daniel, Jesus said this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and again, he's referring to himself, when he comes back, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then skipping to verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, such a concept as this is kind of offensive, and a lot of people have the perspective it's just impossible 
that a God of love would have such a place out there. And yet Jesus talked about it here. And Jesus is someone, of course, who emphasized love and he emphasized grace. But he talked about this scene at the end of time, a judgment day when, when some were going to join him forever. And then it describes others that will be sent to this place that's described as a place with fire, a place that was originally created for the devil and his angels. Now, we struggle with this. Now, my, my subject here this morning is not on the subject of hell. I want you to know that up front. I believe that such a place, though, exists. And my subject does relate to it because I'm convinced we don't have to wonder. We do not have to worry about whether or not we're going to make it to heaven or not. And I think a lot of people just don't know the answer to the question. Am I going to heaven? Do I know that for sure? If you ask the average person, their response will be, I hope so. But I think we can know for sure. John wrote in 1 John 5, 11 through 13, and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. Let me just stop for a moment, but this is the answer here. God has given us eternal life and it's found in his son Jesus. That's the answer. The one who doesn't have the son of God does not have life. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, namely Jesus, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, the Greek word used for know in this verse is a, a word that usually translates into a deep understanding rather than knowing like a set of facts. He's not saying so that you'll know these facts. He's saying so you might have this confidence, this conviction. It's possible to know for sure where we stand with our God. Now, today I want to begin this new series related to the gospel message, the good news, and I would suggest it's great news. And again, it's a message that if we embrace it, if we receive it, Paul called it the very power of God for salvation, the very thing that is able to deliver us from the penalty of our sin, the very thing that guarantees that when we die, we'll go to heaven. But the message of the gospel is confusing to many, clear as mud, as we're calling it here. And throughout this series, I want to sort out some of the ways in which people talk about this message that I don't think are quite right. Through this series, we're going to talk about questions such as, how do you get right with God? How do you know that you are a child of God? How can you be sure your sins are forgiven? How can you know for sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die? What we need to understand is that just sincerity is not enough. A lot of people have the perspective that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Now, not only is that contrary to what's taught in the pages of the Bible, I would argue with you it doesn't even make sense. We all know that people can be sincerely wrong. A couple months ago, if I remember correctly, I shared with you a story where I jumped on a bus in Chicago one early evening. I'd written an address on a little slip of paper, and I was taking this bus ride, and it was one of those occasions where I had to go alone, which normally early evening and evening, it's better not to be alone, but I had to. 
And I usually didn't take a city bus, but I had to, and I jumped on the bus, and as we were getting closer to my destination, I looked at the address and was surprised to see that we were entering into a not-so-nice-looking residential area instead of a commercial area. I th my, my address needed to be a commercial address, a business. But we were entering into a residential area, and we had for a little time, but I looked at the address, I verified the address, I signaled for the bus driver to stop, and he stopped the bus, opened the doors. I got off the bus. He closed the doors. The bus began to roll. It stopped. The doors opened back up, and I heard this voice from the driver, get back on the bus. I don't know where you're going, but it's not here. <laughs> I was so grateful that he had enough concern for me to not leave me in that place where I didn't belong. You know what was wrong? I left a little letter off of my address, the, the letter N, standing for north. I'd gone to the south side of the city, same address. I was supposed to be going to the north side. I was sincerely wrong. And we have to understand that sincerity is not what it takes to get to heaven. Now, I want to talk today about what it does. But recognize that sincerity is not enough. Now, the main issue I want to address today is this. Why is it that Christians think that they're right and that their way is right and that others aren't? Because it seems very, very proud, you know, to, to claim, well, you've got the right answer. Doesn't everybody think they have the right answer? I mean, to be fair, I think every religion thinks they have the right answer. Over the years, I've talked with people from a lot of different backgrounds, religious backgrounds, hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, and I've talked to a lot of clerics, ministers. I've talked with people from the Islamic faith, Judaism. I've talked with Mormons. I've talked with Jehovah's Witnesses. I've talked with people from Catholic backgrounds and from the various Protestant backgrounds. I've, I've talked with people from all kinds of different backgrounds, and one thing that's kind of true of all of them is they, they think they're right which presents a problem for us. How do we know that we're right? Now, my conviction here this morning is based on what John had to say about it. John, one of Jesus' closest friends, accompanied Jesus for three years. He claimed to be an eyewitness. In fact, in one of his letters toward the end of the Bible, right before Revelation, he says, the things I'm telling you about are things I've seen with my eyes. I have heard them with my ears. I've touched them with my own hands. These things are true concerning this Jesus. And he was the one that quoted the words of Jesus. He concluded that Jesus was God, which is huge. Now, I've mentioned before that I think that that's remarkable when you think of what it would take to convince someone you're divine, especially if you came from a Jewish background. If you walked with me for three days, you would conclude absolutely he's not God. I mean, you might say, Tim's a nice guy, but he's not God. I'd know that. If you drove with me for about 30 minutes, you might conclude the same thing. This guy walked with Jesus for three years. He's considered a martyr for his faith, although he wasn't martyred, actually. 
He went through so much, they considered him a martyr. He would not backtrack from his message. He says, I've seen these things with my own eyes. And he begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word, referring to Jesus as God's greatest communication with us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And then he said, the word was God. Now, we'll see in a minute why this matters. But John was the one that recorded a lot of the things that Jesus said. And so he, for example, recorded when Jesus said, I am the gate to the sheepfold. You know, in biblical times, sheepfolds would have one main entrance. What you may not realize is that in biblical times, often the shepherd himself became the door. In other words, he or she would sleep at the entrance so that no one could get in without going through that person. And that's why when Jesus said, I am the door to the sheep, he was claiming, I am the one through whom you need to go. By the way, I want to put in a plug for something that's coming up the first week in November. It's a Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. Ray Vanderlyn's going to be here, and he has a profound understanding of some of these things related to the stories that we find in the Bible, background stuff that'll bring them alive. I encourage you to come to that Friday night, all day, Saturday, and then he'll do all of our services on the weekend. But Jesus said this, I, I'm the door to the sheep. He also said, I'm the, I'm the bread of life. He didn't say he was a bread of life, but I'm the bread of life. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he made many, many other claims. He said, I'm the light of the world, a reference to creation. Remember how in Genesis, God said, let there be light. Jesus was the light of the world. He's able to create physical life and spiritual life. My primary focus here, to, to, though, today is on some words that Jesus said in John chapter 14. That's just where I want to park our attention because Jesus said some things that I think are offensive. He said these words. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And then he said, no one comes to the Father but through me. That's, that's the claim that he made. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he said, no one comes to the Father but through me. We'll look at that verse in just a minute, but let me set the context for that verse and the others we're going to be reading in a moment here. Jesus had just performed what I consider to be his greatest miracle. He raised a guy from the dead who had been dead four days, which had never happened before. In the Jewish mind, if a person was dead for three days, there was still a speck of hope, but after three days, it was hopeless. Jesus came into that situation, called forth the name Lazarus, and he came out of the tomb. What was noteworthy about that miracle is it took place in a city very near Jerusalem. And at that very time, thousands of people were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so when this miracle took place, everybody heard about it. And it created a point in which the religious leaders said, we've got to kill that Jesus. They decided then, he's got to go. And then, to add insult to injury, Jesus, a day or two later, came into the city riding on a donkey. And people began to shout, and tens of thousands of people, Hosanna is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he presented himself as the Messiah and the long-awaited king that everybody was looking for. And the religious leaders almost threw up their hands and said, we've, we've lost our opportunity, but they weren't done yet. They were going to come up with a plan. A day or two after that, Jesus was with his close friends on the night he was to be betrayed. Passover celebration. 
Jesus knew this was it. Jesus knew this was the final time he was going to be with these guys before he was going to be arrested, tried, and crucified. And there were a few things he wanted to communicate with them. First of all, he told them, one of you is going to betray me, one of you 12. Second, he said, all of you are going to abandon me, all of you. And the third thing he said with absolute certainty is, I'm going to die. Now, they were celebrating Passover, and in that context, Jesus said these three downer statements. It's from within this context we begin in John 14. As Jesus looks around at them, he says, your heart must not be troubled, in verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, If not, I would have told you, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, let's talk about this for a little bit, but Thomas obviously did not get the point Jesus was making at this point. He was talking about the fact that he was about to die, and he's suggesting that he's going to be gone for a while. He's going to be going away, really for a long time, to prepare a place for them, and then he's going to eventually call them to be with him. He's talking about... What happens after we die? He's talking about what's going to happen to him. He's talking about what's going to happen to them. I'm preparing a place for you. That's where we're talking about. That's where I'm going. And the how you get there is through me. Look at verse 6 again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, once again, I think it's noteworthy that Jesus did not say, I am a way, a truth, a life. He said, I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And in case they didn't get it, he added this statement, nobody can come to the Father except through me. You say, why do Christians believe that that?" Only through Christ can you get to heaven. It's because of statements like this. No one can come to the Father except through me. You will not see the face of God unless you come through me. That's that's what he's saying. A scholar by the name of Blum put it this way by his words. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus stressed that salvation, which means deliverance from sin, salvation, contrary to what many people think, is not obtainable through many ways. Only one way exists. Jesus is the only access to the Father because he's the only one who came from the Father. There's only one way. Now, I think we need to acknowledge that um, life confirms that many times there's only one way. Not all roads end in the same place, do they? I was once driving with a friend. We were going to Columbus, Ohio. We ended up in Dayton. I said, how do you end in Dayton? I mean, it's like we passed the sign, welcome to Dayton. It's like, how did you get that wrong? All roads don't go to the same place. 
Not every key opens every door. That's what people want to say. Well, it doesn't matter what road you take, you'll end up to God. They're all the same. No, they, they're, no they're not. At least according to what Jesus said here. And Jesus said he was the door. But, you know, if you think about a key, I used to work at a bank and I had about 30 keys. You couldn't just, any key, all the keys, you know, they all open any door. No. It was one key. It's one key. We, that's life. And Jesus said he was the only way. Now, Jesus wasn't the only one who said this. Acts, in Acts 4.12, Paul wrote, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. There's no other name out there. That's what Paul said. Later, he wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there's one God and one mediator between God and humanity it's Christ Jesus himself, human. There's only one person that can bridge the gap between people and God. It's someone who was fully man and fully God. That's why he alone can bridge the gap. Now, you can decide whether or not you believe that the Bible is true or not, but as I consider who Jesus was, it begins to make sense. Let me mention three things about Jesus. I won't spend a lot of time on any of them, but first of all, it's just noteworthy that Jesus alone was God in the flesh. That's why he can save us. That's why he can offer forgiveness to us. And that's what Jesus said to his close friends in John 14, 1, which we just read. He said, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Do you see how bold that statement would be if it's not true? What if I told you, you believe God, then believe me? You'd say, wow, that's kind of blasphemous. What are you claiming to be God? He, Jesus was. A few verses later, same chapter, verse 9 or verse 7. He said, if you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord said, Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time without you knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How could you say, show me God? How can you say, show me the Father if you've seen me? Now, do you, do you get it? Again, what if I said that? If you see me, you see God. Well, if I say that, stone me and drag me out somewhere. That's what Jesus said. So you have to decide, do I believe it or not? But he claimed it. Now, why does it matter? Well, it matters for two reasons. Number one is it means when he said something, I tend to believe it. I tend to believe it, whatever Jesus said. But second, the fact that he was God was essential to the story of our forgiveness because he could not die for your sins or mine if he were not sinless himself. He had to be God. <clears throat> second thing that was true about Jesus is that Jesus alone conquered death. If I want to know what happens after I die, I'd kind of like to talk to someone who's been there and came back. Jesus is the one who opened the door for us. And Jesus was tell, telling his close friends in those verses we just read that he's going to go there and he's going to prepare the place for them. Again, in verse 2, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, then I'm going to come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Anyone who knows Jesus and has put their trust in him is going to be with him. Because he defeated sin and death, you also will spend an eternity with him. 
That's why John wrote in John 14, 19, in a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you'll see me because I live, you will live too. That's the promise we have. That's why Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live forever. Because you, you've grabbed onto the one who defeated death. You've associated yourself with him, and therefore you will, say, uh, you will have his fate in your own life. So Jesus alone was God in the flesh. He alone conquered death. And finally, Jesus alone did what was required to save us. See, the problem we're addressing here today in terms of trying to get to heaven is the fact that we all sin. How do sinful people make it to a perfect place? Now, most religions on the planet, if not all of them, have the perspective that, well, how you fix the sin problem is you be a good person. They say if your good deeds outweigh your bad... Or if you follow this, this prescription, this religious ceremony, you go through these steps, then you'll go to heaven. That's what most religions say. It's a, it's a philosophy that's based on what you do to get right with God. Christianity starts with the idea there's nothing you can do to fix this. It's a world of difference between the two. <clears throat> we believe we cannot get right with God through doing good deeds. Now, understand that in our own judicial system, that's what we believe, do we not? If you go to court, what good do your good deeds do? I mean, it might lighten your sense, sentence a little bit, but imagine you were speeding, in, going 100 miles an hour in a school zone. And you, and you, were, you, you were caught, and you go to the judge, and the judge said, you, you were going 100 miles an hour and you could have killed somebody and the speed limit is 25, I need to take your license and I'm going to do all this. And then you said, excuse me for a minute, but I just want you to know I'm a good person. I help old people across the street. I buy Girl Scout cookies. I go to church. I don't know when the laughter stopped, the judge would say, that's fine you do those things, but it... How does our good ever erase the bad? It, it doesn't. But that's how most religions are set up. You do these things and you'll fix the bad you've done. And then you continue doing bad things as if it erased it. No, our system, God's system, Jesus' system, is that we can't fix it. We need a deliverer, a savior who was God in the flesh, who had never sinned himself. And what happened is he came into this world to pay the price for what you and I did wrong. I believe when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was paying the full debt for every sin that any of us and all of us have committed so that God could declare us not guilty so that we'd be qualified to go to heaven. That's the only way you'll get to heaven. He paid the price in full. And why is that necessary? Because God is just. God is holy. He can't just sweep our sins under the carpet. He can't say, oh, it's fine. I don't care what you do. No, a holy God requires an accounting to take place. And we couldn't fix it. So what if someone else paid the price in full? What if someone said, I'll do it? They'd have to be sinless themselves. They'd have to be willing. We believe Jesus did that. When he rose again from the dead, it demonstrated that the payment that was made on our behalf was accepted by God. And then the requirement, the only requirement is, well, we can't earn this thing, so all we can do is receive it as a gift, which requires faith on our part. 
Speaking to a religious leader, John, Jesus said these words in John 3, 14 through 16, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's referring to a story in the Old Testament where Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. He said, just like Moses put that snake up there, he said, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. That's the requirement. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, I think people are bothered again by the exclusivity of this thing, but realize the invitation goes out to all. It's not meant to be exclusive. It's meant to be inclusive. And I'm convinced that there was no other solution than for God to send his son to be the savior of the world, or God would have gone that route. He would not have sacrificed his son unless it was essential. And if Jesus really was God, the son, and if he really did what he did, then we better receive him. Because as Paul wrote, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. So what's the application here today? Well, for some of you, I want to ask, have you, have you taken that step? Have you put your trust in Jesus to be your savior? And if you understand what I'm saying here today and you realize, I know I've sinned and I, I believe it. I do believe Jesus died for me. And I want his death and resurrection to count for me. I'm going to close in a minute with a prayer that I encourage you to pray and receive Christ as your Savior. It's just a matter of faith. Whoever believes in him, it's a prayer that just expresses your faith. For those of you that already have a relationship with God through faith in Christ, though, as we do this series, I want to encourage you to think in terms of being prepared to talk with other people about it so that you have clarity in terms of what the gospel really is and what it is not. So let's close our time with prayer. I encourage you to bow your heads here. And if, again, you, you believe what I'm saying is true and you say, this makes sense. And I do believe Jesus was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And I want to receive him today as my Savior. I just encourage you to pray a prayer along these lines. Dear God, I know I've blown it. I know I sin. And I can't fix it. I admit I need a Savior, a Deliverer. And I do believe today that you sent your son Jesus to come into this world so that he might die in my place and for the things that I've done wrong. And that he rose again from the dead, defeating death. Today, O oh Lord, I want to put my trust in him. Today, I want to claim that promise you made in John 3 where God, you said... Whoever believes in him, whoever makes him the object of their trust will have eternal life. We grab a hold of that today. We receive your son Jesus as our savior and we pray all this in Jesus' name and because of what he's done for us. Amen.